Thanks for listening to the Frontiers podcast. If you have a moment before we start, please rate and follow this podcast. It makes a huge difference. The more of you that do this, the more people get to listen. And the more people that get to listen, the bigger platform I'm building for academics to share their research. Thanks so much. Hi there. You're listening to Frontiers, the podcast that explores cutting-edge research from the world's best scientists. I'm Ian Hallett, and in each episode, I interview professors, doctors, and research scientists who are leading authorities in technology, economics, business, politics, the environment, and sociology, so we can learn about the scientific breakthroughs that will redefine our world. I wanted to follow up on the interview that I had with Jana Sedlikova of the University of Zurich. Jana and I, in the last episode, were talking about the use of conversational AI in the context of psychotherapy. And that's probably one of the most intimate uses of AI that I can probably think of. And I was thinking about what would it take in order for people to adopt this product in a mass market way? And are there anything, is there anything about artificial intelligence and product adoption that would mean that this product or this service is never going to fly. Now, if it can work in psychotherapy, if AI, conversational AI can work in psychotherapy, it can certainly work in a plethora of contexts that are absolutely nothing to do with sharing your emotions, sharing your feelings, sharing your problems with a robot or a, a chat bottle. So I, I delved into some different types of research in order to understand this. And the first one, which I thought was quite interesting, was some research that was about product adoption. And this was done in 2023. This is a study that was looking at public's comfort with AI and whether their attitudes towards innovation and whether any socio-demographic factors played a role in people's adoption of AI-based products. So this was a survey of just over 3,000 people. And it was really interesting. What it basically showed that People with positive attitudes towards innovation correlate very strongly with having favorable opinions on adopting AI products. That's probably not a surprise. There's this kind of whole research around early adopters and what their attitudes are and things like that. But what was also interesting is that those with negative attitudes have apprehensive views on AI and are less likely to take on a product in any context, leave alone psychotherapy. So what's really interesting is that the attitude towards innovation massively affects people's perception of AI. What it also found, though, is that some socio-demographic dimensions also made a big difference, particularly men were more likely to accept AI as a product or a service than women are. So if you take a scenario where you've got men with a bias towards innovation are likely to adopt products that have AI built into them, and people that are less likely to be associated with innovative products or, or find them to be kind of something that they'd like to engage in, less likely to adopt them. And then women, whether they are interested in innovation or not, are also less likely. You kind of create this structural difference in whether or not these products are going to be successful or not. So you know, that's quite interesting, the gender disparity and, and, and how things work. So then I went on to do some further research to say, well, what what is it that drives adoption in a more general sense? And there's some really, there's two really interesting papers. One 
which actually talks about how Edison designed the electric light. And there's another one that talks about social structures and culture and their attitude towards and people's attitudes in different contexts to to take on new products. And so this isn't about AI generally. This is about actually taking on taking on new products. And what it basically shows is that the Edison story is really interesting. So the electric light was there to replace the gas light. And there would have been a lot of social inertia against a radical change to the way that lights work. So the gaslight was the way that people lit their houses and that was the prevalent technology at the time. So what Edison actually did is that he aimed to reduce the psychological barrier to adoption by making the light, the electric light, as familiar as possible to the gaslight, where really what he was doing, he was simply just changing the technology that produced the light, but the look and the feel, the aesthetics, the way it functioned it behaved like a gaslight. So that meant that by conforming to the way a product is, the the prevalent product is currently designed, but adding in a layer of innovation was the way that people accepted the product. So you're driving innovation, but just not too far. But what you're also doing at the same time is you're creating a platform for further innovation. So Edison may have had a big vision of how he wanted the electric light to develop, and if you jump to the end or even halfway through that vision, then the, the likelihood of product adoption would be much, much lower because it was too unfamiliar to people. So more familiarity drives greater adoption. Now, bring this back to AI. I think this is what we've actually experienced with ChatGPT, particularly the first version that became, if you like, best known in the, in the public sphere in early 2023. When you logged on to ChatGPT, which was the fastest growing product in history in terms of adoption of it. It looked like a search engine. It was a very, it was a white screen, a lot like Google screen, and it had a box that you typed things into it and it produced a result. So the marvel, the innovation was the large language model that it was based on and the innovation layer that sat underneath that. But the conformity was it looked a lot like a search engine. And that meant that People of all different types of attitudes towards innovation were very happy to try it out and use it and could learn how to use it, could know how to use it intuitively because it, it functioned just like something else that they were already using many, many times during the day. So when you come back to or when one comes back to the idea of conversational AI in the context of psychotherapy or frankly in the context of anything else, the most important thing, it seems to drive the adoption. Yes, expect people with an innovation mindset to adopt it first. Yes, it may be true that men have a greater likelihood of adopting it than women. But if you make that product behave and conform to whatever it's replacing, which we'll come to in a minute, with the layer of innovation underneath it, then you're likely to get a greater success. So then the exam question comes, well, how do you mimic a discussion with a trained clinical psychologist. Now, I think COVID's actually done something to lay the land for this. Now, if you take pre-COVID discussions, my understanding is pretty much every single clinical psychology meeting took place in person. And actually what developed over COVID was a need to have these sessions over Zoom or Teams or some other mechanism that enabled a, a digital call. So actually, if you think about what happens now, 
people's likelihood of seeing medical staff seeking medical advice via a video call of some form is really prevalent. So it wouldn't be too difficult to imagine a situation where you're having a video call with an avatar, with an AI-based avatar that looks and behaves like a real person. That cannot be outside the realms of possibility. I can absolutely imagine a situation whereby a Teams-type call, a Zoom-type call with an AI that looks like a person, behaves like a person, speaks like a person, is qualified in the same way a clinical psychologist is qualified, could actually become a successfully adopted product. And then maybe there's a step before this. I don't know whether there are many chat mechanisms, messaging mechanisms between clinical psychologists and people that need their help. But there are already AI apps out there. Pi.ai is one of them that kind of helps you to explore concerns that you have in quite a conversational way. So you can just say in its little chat area, I'm feeling a bit down today. Can you help me? And it gives you some nice words back, very positive words back. It gives you some guidance on what you could do to get yourself out of the situation that you're in. So these kind of text messaging type things where it's almost being a friend, uh, maybe if you like the entry level to getting this in place. And then when you're seeking more medical help, then perhaps that you can have some form of avatar that enables this to, to feel more real. Now, all of this is slightly hypothetical until we've got this capability in place, but you don't need to search too far on the internet to find out that deep fakes exist conversational AI exists. You can have genuine interactions with these things and feel like you're talking to a person now. And actually, it's the structural risk management of firms like OpenAI that are stopping them from giving medical advice. They could actually give a basis of medical advice now. The only problem is that nobody knows whether it's good medical advice or bad medical advice and whether they just made it up based on some algorithmic response to a string of words. I think it would be fair to say that we're not too far away from it. So they're my reflections. Really interested to see what your thoughts on these reflections are. So message me, connect with me on LinkedIn, and we can have a conversation about it. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. To support this podcast, please follow it on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you again. Hope to see you next time.